As the days gradually lengthen in the Northern Hemisphere, birds sing to announce their territories and to find mates. Before dawn, the singing begins. In the early morning darkness, a chorus swells, crescendoing as the sun ushers in the dawn. As the sky continues to lighten, birds busily flit in the air, diving to the ground and back up again, some chasing each other from tree to tree. A cardinal, adorned in bright red plumage, sits on a branch high up in the canopy and announces its presence. A few seconds later, from a more distant tree, another echoes a reply. Robins, in a small flock, swoop down to the ground, piercing the soil with their beaks in search of insect larvae and worms. Then, in near unison, they fly back up into the trees. Blue jays chase each other and other birds from branch to branch, calling loudly to each other and defending their territories. Other birds chatter excitedly to each other, chickadees, house finches, wrens. Strangely though, the chorus is small. You can make out the songs of individual birds. And by 8 a.m. in many neighborhoods where I live, the birds are either silent or their songs are drowned out by the noise made by people as they rev up their machines. Hi, I'm Kate Sussman, and this is the Toxic Lawn Podcast Series, Episode 6, The Deafening Din of an Unsilent Spring. One of my favorite ways to begin my day in the spring and summer is to enjoy a cup of coffee on the back patio and listen to the birds. Only, the chorus isn't nearly what it was 30 years ago when I first moved here, and most of the time, someone fires up noisy lawn equipment soon after the sun rises, chasing me inside behind closed doors and windows against the roar. Rachel Carson, in her 1962 bestseller, Silent Spring, called international attention to the impact of harmful pesticides, notably DDT, on bird populations and other wildlife. She stunned the world with her carefully researched observations and information about massive fish and bird die-offs and lamented that spring would soon no longer be filled with the sound of birds. Government bans of DDT and the formation of the EPA seemed to suggest that the birds were saved in the nick of time. The 1970s with the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the establishment of the EPA saw a slow recovery of some bird populations over several decades, particularly birds of prey like the bald eagle and some insects in areas where the spraying was halted. Despite these apparent victories, the plight of the vast majority of birds, not so much in public awareness anymore, has continued to worsen. DDT might be a lesser player in the chemical warfare we we still wage against nature, but as I discussed in the previous episodes of this podcast series, the arsenal of chemical weapons has only increased, and birds, insects, and fish are disappearing at an alarming rate all across the globe. Increased human colonization of bird habitats, invasions of suburban and exurban communities into forests, loss of insects and plant diversity, climate change and weather disruptions to migration, human night light pollution all contribute, along with the marinade of toxic chemicals unleashed with abandon after massive deregulation in the 1980s and 1990s to the continuing decline in birds, insects, and other wildlife. 
In 2022, Alexander Lees from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and an international group of collaborators from the United Kingdom, South Africa, Colombia, and India published The State of the World's Birds in the journal Annual Review of Environment and Resources. They report that there has been a steady worsening of the diversity and numbers of birds across the globe over the past 30 years. An interesting factoid is that the most abundant bird on the planet is the domesticated chicken, grown for human consumption, more than 19 billion. Almost half of all wild bird species are in a steady decline in numbers. More than half of the wild bird species in North America are in decline, with alarming declines in species that inhabit American grasslands, the agricultural breadbasket of the U.S. Migratory birds are also suffering great losses. So it's no surprise that the raucous bird chorus celebrating spring is no longer a dominant sound in America's yards and forests, but it's no silent spring, nope. We've replaced the bird song with the roar of our lawn equipment, creating a deafening din that affects our health and that of the wildlife still remaining around us. On an early spring day, people employ their leaf blowers to spend hours blowing the splattered road salt and gravel of winter road treatments from the edge of the lawn into the street to be washed down or blown down the storm drains by the street cleaner in early April. It takes a long time and a lot of effort to blow gravel out of grass. Arguably, using a handheld rake might be more effective, but not nearly as loud and powerful sounding. Once the gravel is blown into the street, spreaders and sprayers layer on weed killers and fertilizer and then leaf blowers blow the spillage back into the grass or into the street so that the driveway has no little blue or white granules on it. Then as soon as the grass begins to green up from the artificial jolt of nitrogen and phosphorus, the lawnmowers, trimmers, and blowers begin their weekly march across lawns everywhere. From March, or even February as our winters get shorter, through November, gas-powered leaf blowers, chainsaws, and lawnmowers run amok. Adding to this harmful torrent of sound, dust and fumes, our focus in the previous episode, the clouds hanging in the air and slowly wafting through the neighborhood. If you live in a neighborhood like mine, where everyone tries to maintain a well-manicured green grassy monoculture to show what good neighbors they are, the din and cacophony of engines roaring fills the air from dawn till dusk every day of the week. Birds can't hear each other. The stress of the loud noise all day also takes a toll on the health and well-being of the wildlife in earshot, as well as all of us, beyond hearing loss. Gas-powered lawnmowers emit 90 to 95 decibels. Leaf blowers can release 95 to 100 decibels at full throttle, and weed whackers emit on average 95 decibels. Now keep in mind that anything over 85 decibels can cause permanent hearing loss in humans. And depending on the landscape, the sounds can penetrate walls and travel up to a half a mile. If you are within 100 feet of these machines, you can damage your hearing after just a few minutes. Your pets and the backyard wildlife hearing suffers as well. And we are subjected to the noise for hours and hours on end. Today's focus is on how this thunderous noise pollution affects us all. But first, why do birds sing? 
Many bird species are active during the day, basically from just before dawn until just after sunset. For many of the common birds in our yards and neighborhoods, they migrate south to warmer areas in the fall and return in the spring. There are other species like black-capped chickadees, house finches, and blue jays that remain year-round. For most birds, the breeding season begins in the spring and the lengthening days and warming temperatures trigger hormonal changes that prepare the birds for breeding. That includes changes in their brains that activate song production. Many birds sing to attract mates. They also sing to announce their territories and to brag about their capabilities. Birds also send out alarm or alert calls to warn others of a possible predator, like a cat or a hawk, and baby birds call out to their parents and their parents often call back to them to shush them in case of a predator or reassure them that they are nearby. In the spring, many birds do a lot more singing, but some sing all year in many cases. We often notice that the fall and winter are much quieter with regard to bird calls because many have migrated and some no longer have the hormonal activation of song. But year-round, you can hear blue jays, crows, starlings, and chickadees. The types of calls are different, mostly social and territory communication rather than mating serenades. Sometimes I'm pretty sure that the crows up in the trees are chatting about me as I walk below. Maybe they're commenting on what I'm wearing or how slowly I'm plodding along now as compared to years past. So how does lawn equipment affect birds? Of course, the biggest impact of the noise from lawn equipment is that it literally makes it harder for birds to hear each other. In very loud surroundings, some birds avoid the area until the noise lessens, or they go silent and remain on high alert. Migrating birds have been shown to avoid noisy stopover places on their routes, which may exhaust them or cause them to miss key feeding opportunities. Also, just like us, their ears are sensitive to damage from loud noises, so it's possible that the birds around us are suffering hearing loss from all our noisy equipment. The sound frequency of the equipment is also an important factor, not just the volume. Lawn mowers, for example, emit sounds at the bottom of the range that birds use for communicating, but the noise is distracting to the birds who may react more slowly to an alarm call about a hunting cat in the area. Chainsaws, in contrast, emit higher frequency sounds that are right in the middle of most birds' communication range. A 2022 study published in the Journal of Ethology showed that in the presence of chainsaw noise, females of a common backyard bird similar to the tufted titmouse made fewer visits to their nests, choosing instead to staying on a nearby branch on high alert for possible predators. Fewer visits means less food for the baby birds hunkered down in the nest. A 2021 study by Pedro Diniz and Charles Daca at a university in Brazil showed that wrens become more behaviorally aggressive towards intruders when exposed to equipment noise, and they increase the pitch of their vocalizations to be detectable over the din. These behavioral adaptations to the human-generated noise put the birds at increased risk for getting nabbed by a predator like a domesticated cat on the prowl. The louder singing also takes more energy and can exhaust the birds more readily. Some birds, particularly those that encounter these noises regularly, can respond by singing much earlier before dawn and then going silent, or by singing much more loudly earlier in the day. 
Some birds shift the pitch of their songs or change the length or complexity of their songs so that they can be identified above the noise. It's like they're desperately shouting to be heard before the equipment gets too loud. Some birds give up and move away. Many birds have trouble mating and when they do have fewer offspring. The stress of the noise also lowers the immune function in birds, making them more susceptible to disease. Some other changes that have been observed by scientists include deficiencies in defending territory, but yet increased nonverbal aggression, including difficulties feeding or foraging, disrupted sleep, decreases in body weight, and increased levels of stress hormones. One of my colleagues in the biology department here at Vassar College, Dr. Megan Gall, studies the impacts of our human-produced noise on songbirds like the black-capped chickadee, as well as zebrafish and frogs. Dr. Gall's main scientific interest is in sensory ecology, particularly animal communication and interactions between physiology, sensory system development, and the ecological landscape. I spoke with Dr. Gall about how human-produced noise like lawn equipment and traffic are affecting songbirds and frogs like spring peepers. Hello, Dr. Gall, and welcome to the podcast today. Hi, Kate or Dr. Sussman, whichever you Kate is fine. On the, on the podcast. Yeah, Kate is fine. Um, to get us started today, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about you and how you came to be interested in the effects of human-produced noise on birds and other wildlife. Yeah, so I am a sensory ecologist, which means I'm interested in how sensory systems have evolved in response to the physical structures of environments and also the kinds of behaviors and other tasks that animals have to do. And a lot of what I focus on is audition, so uh, what animals are hearing. And we know that in the environment, there's already noise, right? There's natural noise, and that natural noise will differ depending on what kind of environment you live in. If you're right by the ocean or you're right by a very big waterfall, there's going to be a lot of noise. And so you might develop um, systems of communicating that are not sound. So frogs, even though they're known for making lots of vocalizations, there are a few species that live by waterfalls and they have these amazing things called foot flagging behaviors, where they'll stick out this foot that's been highly ornamented and wave it around instead of calling. Um, and even in sort of what we think of as normal environments, there's still a lot of noise and a lot of that noise is low frequency. And animals have evolved thresholds for sound detection, so the lowest sound that they're able to detect that are sort of just above what their normal noise levels are gonna be. And of course, humans came along, we've changed everything and we've added all this additional noise that's still relatively low frequency, but now a lot of the times above those thresholds. And so if animals are communicating at very loud amplitudes, that might not matter so much. However, if they're trying to detect things that are very soft, for instance, a prey item or detect a predator coming, or maybe even detect a communication signal that's far away, that could be a big problem. And so we're interested in it less from sort of a conservation standpoint and more from a how are animals with sensory systems that evolved in one context gonna deal with this sort of new novel problem that they haven't had to solve before. Yeah, what a terrific area and so important and, and really relevant to what we've been talking about today about um, human produced noise from lawn equipment and things in the suburbs and near forests and habitats all over the place. 
Um, in 2017, you published an article along with co-author co Jacob Damsky on this topic, focusing on black cap chickadees and the tufted titmouse, which are both local birds that we commonly see in our backyards and forests everywhere. So I'm wondering if you could explain that study and what its main take home messages were. Yeah, so in that study, we were interested in how noise would affect the ability of chickadees and titmice to respond to a call called the chickadee call. Both of the species make it. It sounds like chickadee dee dee. If you, you know, if you listen to birds at all, you probably are very familiar with that call. And it's a really fascinating call because it has a syntax. So there are actually different note types in that call. And birds can duplicate any note they want or triplicate it, or they can make multiple copies or they can leave them out, but they're always in the same order. So you might make a bunch of A notes and that might have a different meaning than a call that has a bunch of D notes in it. And so we were interested in the one that has these D notes. They sound like the D, D, D part of the call. And the more of those things that the um, titmice and chickadees put into their calls, the higher the level of threat they're communicating or the more urgency they're communicating about a potential predator. Now, these calls are unusual because they're not being used to say, hey, there's a predator coming, we should run away. Instead, these calls are mostly be using, being used to say, there's a predator over there sleeping or doing something or it's not bothering us. Now's our chance to gang up on it and hopefully tell it that we're going to be a difficult meal. And so that call is really interesting because you have to make it when you notice that predator. That means you can't really time shift it at all. And so if no it's really noisy and that's happening, you might not be able to communicate this to your other chickadees and titmice that you know to come help you. And that predator might not know that you are a hard meal and your chances of being eaten might go up. And so we were interested in how their behavior would change um, when we played back noise with this chickadee call. And we looked at two things. We looked at their approach to the speaker. So again, this call is being used to recruit other individuals, to call individuals to it. So if they can hear it, we would expect them to move towards the speaker that's playing that sound. And then we also looked at their foraging patterns on, um, we call them platforms, but basically on a, a feeder nearby to ask whether or not they would change a different behavior that was sort of not associated with um, the predator. So we might expect if they can hear that signal, they might stop foraging. And if noise was aversive, so if they just didn't like noise, but it wasn't affecting their ability to hear the call, they might also change their foraging, but not really change their approach to the predator. So we had three um, treatments. We had noise alone. So just noise and no call to see if noise alone was doing anything. Noise with the call, which should make it harder to detect the call and then the call alone, which should be very attractive. And what we found is that um, chickadees didn't really change their foraging behavior in any of those circumstances. So it doesn't affect, seem to be affecting foraging in a slightly distant location. Um, and they changed their approaches to the speaker, but only during the chickadee only playback. So if we played noise, there was no change before, during, and after the playback. If we played the noise and the call, there was no change. But if we played the call, they increased their approaches while the call was playing. And so what that suggests to us is that noise is going to be affecting their ability to respond to that signal when um, 
you know, in the moment when it's really important to respond to it. Do you think that the uh, the sound, the noise was masking the call so they couldn't hear it, so they essentially ignored it? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the things that people have assumed is that the noise um, may mask the signal, which means it's covering it up. So we just did a study where we asked, is that noise masking or is it distracting? So if you've ever been trying to work in a coffee shop and everybody's talking, it's hard to focus. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, we did a two by two study where we presented them either with a chickadee call or an actual visual predator. And then we played noise or not. And so what we expected is if it's masking the signal, it shouldn't affect their response to the, the visual stimulus. And if it's distraction, then it should affect both of them equally. And what we found is that, um, well, it sort of depends on the way we look at the data, but it seems like if anything, it's it, it might differ be between species. So some might be more distracted and some might be uh, more a product of masking. We used much lower noise level, something more realistic for kind of a suburban setting. Um, previously, we'd used closer to sort of highway level noises. And it seems like the effect of that is much lower. Um, so our birds may be pretty used to it, at this point, if it's not loud enough to mask, it may not be distracting because they're they're um, familiar with that kind of noise. So kind of trying to relate that to the folks of, in our audience who most likely are living in suburban neighborhoods and sort of in in yards that might have these these chickadees and other birds. Um, how do you think the birds that live in, in these neighborhoods might be affected by the persistent use, like from March through November, of gas-powered lawn equipment in the mornings and evenings especially? But I certainly know in, in my neighborhood, it's as I say to many folks in the audience, um, in, in my neighborhood, it's pretty much from dawn till dusk every day of the week. And so it kind of makes me wonder how these birds are reacting. Yeah, in suburban neighborhoods, um, especially ones where there's lots of lawn, but maybe a few a few trees that birds might sing from, I would expect, and I don't know that, I, I think this is fairly backed up in the literature, but um, I would expect that the biggest impacts would happen pretty early in the morning. So there's a phenomenon called the dawn chorus, which is when those individuals are singing. We think that there's a lot of reasons they may be singing early in the morning. Um, one possibility is it's advertising how awesome you are, that you could you know, have no food for this really long period of time, be very small, and then still get up and do this thing that's very energetically expensive. Um, it might also be because if you've been up really early, you know that everything gets really still right before the sun comes up because the air is cool. And as soon as the sun comes up, the air starts to heat and it causes disturbances. And that can make wind noise and things like that that are um, harder for signals to propagate. But uh, regardless of why that happens, this is really important for doing two things. Attracting mates if it's fairly early. So in the springtime, you're setting up things called territories that you're going to defend. You're telling other individuals, stay away from me. And you're telling potential mates to come here. And if your signals are not going as far or you're having to sing louder, which might happen, right? Like at a, a cocktail party, if you're having to talk louder, it takes more energy, it's hard on your throat. That might take up a lot of energy. And so birds may not be able to communicate as well and could have a real impact on things like how many kids they have or how successful they are. Um, and then during the day, it could also have an impact, especially if you are someone who has feeders or you have a lot of places that birds could be foraging on their ability to detect predators. Mm -hmm. um, if they're eating 
things that make sounds themselves on their ability to find prey. It's probably not as big a deal for granivores, so birds eating seeds and things like that. Um, but for robins, for instance, there's some evidence that they use pretty low frequency sound to find um, to find worms. There's some debate about whether or not that's true, um, but but they may be affected by that noise as well. Do you think that similar effects might be happening in people exposed to a level of noise throughout the spring, summer, and fall? Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's sort of uh, two components of that. One is that so far I only talked about communication, but there's lots of other things that we know really loud levels of noise can do. They can, for instance, in a lot of species, they can induce stress. And so your court levels can change, whether it's corticosterone or cortisol, depending on what taxa we're talking about, but your, your hormones associated with stress can increase. That can have all kinds of effects on metabolism. We know that um, birds might be more likely in really loud areas to abandon their nests. So they might, you know, stop doing parental activities if they get too stressed out. So, you know, I'm not saying that humans are going to abandon their children, but certainly (laughs) our stress levels can go up. There's pretty good evidence that, um, that, there are cognitive de- deficits associated with being exposed to loud noise uh, for long periods of time. Um, so they may have a detrimental effect on sort of our, our peace and our quiet. Yeah. If you're getting really close to those signals, there's also a good chance that um, you may have some hearing damage. So our ears have sort of three major parts. You have your outer ear and your eardrum, which is a real thin membrane. And if sound is too loud, it'll push on it too hard and can rupture it, which is pretty painful. Then we have middle ear bones and they sort of move and they help amplify sound. But we actually have a mechanism in our ear as well that if we know a loud sound is coming, we can uh, change our muscle tension and so sort of decouple our outer ear from our inner ear. And then we have these cells called hair cells inside of our ears. And that's where the real damage, the real persistent damage can occur where if sound is really loud, the membrane they're sitting on will vibrate too much and the cell can be separated from the, um, the auditory nerve underneath. And if those synaptic connections are broken or if the hair cells are ruptured in mammals like humans, it's unlikely to, that that damage will be repaired. And so you can get persistent um, effects. The thing that we usually lose first is our high frequency hearing because all sounds have to pass through the high frequency portion of our cochlea. And so even loud, low frequency sounds will affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in my lab, I've been a drummer my whole life. And in my lab, there is a computer that makes a very, very loud high pitched noise that I cannot hear, but all my students can hear and complain about uh, endlessly. So I've already, you know, permanently damaged my hearing. Do you have any advice for our audience if they are concerned about the noise of lawn equipment on um, themselves and also on the on the wildlife that they share their land with? Well, I have a feeling you and I are on the same page here, which is I, you know, I have attempted to remove as much lawn from my house as possible. So I've been planting lots of native plants and also lots of um, trees and fruiting trees and all kinds of things that are also kind of a pain in the butt actually to take care of, but um, are encouraging a much, hopefully a much broader diversity of species mm-hmm. um, and better ecosystem health, even if I'm just a little tiny postage stamp, postage stamp lot in, uh, in the middle of suburbia. Um, I think, you know, also changing to electric equipment is quite a bit, 
quieter. Um, so, you know, if you can do that, if your lawn is small enough that you can take advantage of, of that, that's probably um, good. Letting your lawn, you know, grow longer. I think there's some pros and cons to that approach, but that can also, um, that can also help as well. So I think any of those approaches are, are probably good things for everybody's sake, not just from a sound level perspective, but from a you know, an ecosystem health perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. We are on the same page about all of those. And, and I would think also encouraging folks in the neighborhood to maybe at least delay when they're going to be turning the equipment on sort, sort of to let the bird choruses do their thing in the morning, um, maybe help everyone get a chance to get up and go prior to, prior to it starting. I know in, in the town that I live in, um, you're supposed to wait until 8 a.m. on the weekdays and 9 a.m. on the weekends, but there's no enforcement. Nobody, nobody does anything. And so pretty much as soon as, as soon as it's light enough to see, you start to, you start to hear it. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today, Dr. Gall. And, um, we, I really appreciated learning from you about, uh, about the work that you do. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so the science is clear that human-generated noise causes short and long-term harm for birds and other animals we share our land with. How does lawn equipment noise affect us? The effects of loud noise on human health are well documented. People living in cities or in high traffic areas or near airports or construction sites all experience short-term and long-term consequences. It's a strong enough health concern that in 2018, the World Health Organization for Europe set outdoor daytime noise limits of no more than 55 decibels as the healthy limit, based on abundant scientific evidence of damage to human health and well-being of our own noise pollution, of noise levels well below those that physically damage our hearing. The EPA also recommends outdoor noise levels from human activity to be no loud, louder than 55 decibels. Our health and well-being are affected differently depending on the pitch, volume, and duration of the noise. For example, there are many studies documenting health effects in people who live near large highways or airports where noise levels can exceed what's considered a safe level for multiple hours during the day and night. In addition, exposure to loud, unpredictable, or constant noise also increases stress levels in people and other animals. Frequent or chronic stress is associated with increased risks for cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, hypertension, anxiety, depression, and hearing loss. More than 1,500 scientific articles have been published in the past five years alone about the many health consequences in people exposed to noise pollution, from road traffic to trains and airplanes to lawn equipment and other equipment. In addition to what I listed, increased human-generated noise has been linked to sleep disturbances, inflammation, headache, dizziness, cognitive impairments. A 2022 study showed people have an increased risk of stroke if they live in noisy residential areas. Another 2022 study showed that kids in noisy classrooms, such as when lawn equipment is operating outside, had lower scores on reading comprehension than kids in quiet classroom environments. Elderly people are at higher risk for cognitive impairments if they live in noisy environments. Noise levels above 80 decibels 
can cause behavioral changes ranging from increased aggressive behavior to social disengagement, depression, anxiety, and anger. In 2017, Erica Walker and Jamie Banks from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health published a study examining the noise produced by operating two standard commercial leaf blowers. They wanted to understand how the noise travels in a small suburban community 20 miles outside of Boston. They positioned two leaf blowers held by operators in the parking lot of the town's Department of Public Works and measured low, middle, and high frequency sound generated by the leaf blowers operating at full throttle for one minute. They measured the volume of all the sounds at 50 feet, 100 feet, 200, 400 feet, and 800 feet. They discovered that all of the frequencies of sound were louder than the 55 decibel limit recommended by the WHO and EPA even at 800 feet away. The low frequency sounds traveled the farthest. It's the low frequency sounds that can penetrate through walls into people's homes, schools, daycare centers, and retirement homes. In fact, at 800 feet, the volume of the low frequency sounds from the leaf blowers was almost 70 decibels. At the source where the operators were, the volume of all the frequencies was nearly 100 decibels, which is enough to permanently damage hearing in just a few minutes. A hundred feet away, the low frequency sound was over 95 decibels. So imagine you're walking in your neighborhood past a neighbor who's using their leaf blower, and that neighbor probably has ear protection. You're likely within a hundred feet if you see them as you walk by. It's loud enough to damage your hearing if you stay within that distance for more than 15 minutes. Chronic daily, hours at a time, exposure to levels of sound above 70 decibels have been linked to many of the health issues I described earlier. This means that in neighborhoods like mine, where there is lawn care noise every day from 8 a.m. to dusk from March through November, many of us are experiencing health consequences. In fact, some of the neighbor's lawn services arrive with multiple employees all operating the damaging equipment at the same time. One service has two people operating lawn mowers, two using leaf blowers, and one with a trimmer. This simultaneous assault lasts for at least 30 minutes, every Monday morning at 8 a.m. What a great way to start the work week. And then there's a neighbor behind my backyard who does his own large yard on Saturdays from 4 p.m. to dark, five or six hours during a time when folks might want to have friends over for a barbecue or just relax in the backyard. Then there's the lawn care service that is one man who services three homes in the neighborhood after his day job. He arrives at about 5 o'clock p.m. and each yard takes about two hours. That's three or four evenings a week. Some communities are banding together to reduce the level of noise from lawn equipment. For example, in White Plains, New York, lawn equipment may not be used before 8 a.m. or after 6 p.m. on weekdays, or before 10 a.m. or after 6 p.m. on weekends. They also cannot operate any lawn equipment that exceeds 85 decibels at 50 feet. This means no gas-powered leaf blowers. In fact, no one in White Plains can operate a gas-powered leaf blower after May 14, 2023. 18 counties in California have permanent bans on leaf blowers. Five areas in Illinois and eight counties in New York have bans on gas-powered leaf blowers. 
Communities in Connecticut, Florida, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Oregon have restrictions on the length of time and time of day that leaf blowers can be used. Quiet Communities, Inc. is a nonprofit organization that promotes a reduction of human-generated noise through education, outreach, and community activism. It seems inevitable that the lawn equipment market will shift towards more electric models, and this will greatly reduce the air and ground pollution of the equipment use, which we focused on in the previous episode. Electric equipment is also a lot quieter. Eric Chase, the owner of the all-electric lawn company in Buffalo, New York, that we interviewed last week, estimates that the noise levels are about half that of the gas-powered equivalents. These changes will be wonderful news for our health and that of the wildlife around us. To make an even greater difference, what you could do now would be to reduce the amount of your lawn that's dedicated to grass. Plant some shrubs or native flowers. Plant a native ground cover like red clover or native thyme that doesn't need to be mowed. You can also change when and how often you mow your lawn. Try mowing after the dawn chorus, say mid-morning or later. And be sure to stop before the evening to give your neighbors and your backyard birds a break from the stress of the noise pollution. Try mowing less often. Maybe let the grass get a little bit longer. Perhaps you could mow every 10 days instead of every 7 days. Maybe your neighborhood could agree on several no-mow days of the week to recapture a little of the peace and quiet of a suburban neighborhood that drew us all to live here in the first place. This is Kate Sussman, and you've been listening to Episode 6 of the series Toxic Lawn. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode where I'll consider the biodiversity deserts that are our lawns and how we might address this harmful practice. Thanks for tuning in. The music for today's show comes to you from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com and some of the sound effects from freesound.com. 